Hey, welcome to Project A+. My name is Hugh. Your name. Well, I don't know your name. But my co-host's name is Hunter. Mm. Hello. Welcome to the High Energy Film Show. Called Project A Plus. So today on the show, uh, we're bringing you a very special feature, a very timely feature, um, in that we're going to talk about, in the opposite order in which I'm saying them, Peter Greenaway's A Z and Two Knots. Knots? I don't know how to say that. Knots, yeah. Not, not. They did, they did that. Knots. Knots. And uh, anonymous film directors, I feel pretty. It's not anonymous film director. Let's well, give them credit. Okay, it's, okay go uh, ahead. Abby Cohen and Mark Silverstein. Mm. It's obvious why we've chosen these two films to talk about, because they're intrinsically linked in a number of ways. Yes, they both revolve around uh, mysterious accidents. <laughs> and <laughs> is there anything else that links them? They both have white people in them, primarily. They're both kind of uh, heartwarming morality tales. <laughs> so, Hugh, you, you've kept me on tenterhooks all all week long. Uh, what did you think of the movie I Feel Pretty? Um, I guess you should maybe start set it up beforehand. It's a gritty tale of New York City. stars uh, Amy Schumer of Trainwreck and stand-up comedy. And the Amy Schumer show. Yes, and being a white woman. <laughs> As Renee Barrett, she feels uh, unhappy with her body and sort of her overall appearance. She, she is um, jealous of attractive women and feels that she is not attractive enough to work in this main office. So she suffers from a lot of insecurity and such. Uh, the film opens with her deciding to try a Soul Cycle, which is sort of like a cult based bicycle fitness routine. <laughs> As far as I understand it, her first experience with this biking cult ends with her very embarrassingly ripping her pants open. She decides to persist, though, and after experiencing sort of a bizarre... Oh, no, she watches the movie Big and makes a wish in a fountain that all of her dreams will be fulfilled and she'll finally be pretty. And she returns to the soul cycle place and has another accident uh, which results in her banging her head against a bicycle and then after she emerges from being knocked out she falls under the magic spell which uh, Hollywood seems to view being blocked on the head uh, and sort of believes that she is the idealized beauty image that she uh, worships at the feet of. So it does have something in common with the body swap genre of which we are both so fond. I hate body swap movies. <laughs> They're terrible. I hate them. <laughs> Personally, I'd be happy for every film I saw to be a variation on the body swap God. genre from now on. This is in line with all those romantic comedy films that have some sort of magical, fantastical conceit, uh, such as What Women Want or something like that. Uh, and in fact, <laughs> oh the... God. The writer-directors of this film, Abby Cohen and, and Mark Silverstein, uh, are both stalwarts of that genre, um, known for writing more so than directing. This is their first directorial effort, mm. which I, I think you can probably tell. 
Can you give me a selection of their greatest hits? Uh, I think they did like He's Not That Into You. Mm. Uh, what else did they do? Never Been Kissed, a movie I referenced earlier yeah. today. So they've been plumbing this uh, genre for, for a while, and it makes sense that this film kind of slots reasonably anonymously into that genre. Typical of these type of films, it's a morality tale of, of some description where, the, where there's some overarching lesson along with the romantic stuff. But I suppose it's a little bit different than strictly romantic comedy films where the central romance is the main story. I'd say the main story of this is, is about her accepting her body. And the romance almost is like a reward for that. Yeah, way. yeah. The romance story of this is fairly minor, I would say. Yeah, you could kind of just remove it from the movie and nothing would really change that much. I mean, the main thing is that uh, the her love interest played by... <laughs> An anonymous man. <laughs> Rory Scoville is apparently his name. He doesn't really have much of a, a character. Or personality. <laughs> I think the actor is not bad in the role, but um, the character's a bit strange. And it kind of undermines the overall message of the film, which is just to be you by making fun of his hilarious feminine aspects. <laughs> Did you enjoy that bit? Oh, yeah, that was great. Which they could have just included as part of his character without comment, but it's apparently hilarious that he goes to women's fitness things and stuff like that. And he's... Oh, yeah, and, and, he, and he's embarrassed. He doesn't want to become a camera because it's too much of a boys' club. Okay, I'm going to ask you a question, Hugh. Mm-hmm. Did you laugh <laughs> at all when you were watching this movie? No, but but I did I did notice that there was a stretch of the film in which I was smiling, <laughs> which is maybe worse. I think that's 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 worse than just like okay. an involuntary uh, eruption of laughter. <laughs> can I can I admit something? Hmm. There were some uh, moments in this movie that I thought were funny. I thought I'd say the best joke in the film was the one of the two poo jokes. Which one? The one with her co-worker in which she wants to tell him something and he's on the toilet at the time. Oh, God, I hated that so much. And he and he says, um, please leave, I don't want you to hear this splash. Which, you know, I, I actually enjoyed. I did not think that was funny at all. Well, I guess you just don't have a sophisticated sense of humour. Yeah, I guess not. Um, I will say, I thought Michelle Williams was like legitimately really funny in this. I thought she was terrible in this. Okay, so she plays the the, the fashion mogul that uh, Amy Schumer's character aspires to to be like, I guess, and she appears to be doing a later Michael Jackson impression. Really? That's that's <laughs> what that's what the new performance seemed like. To well, me, I but... didn't. I mean, I guess I did that verse in later day Michael Jackson, so I didn't really get that vibe at all. But uh, it it just seemed like an unconvincing attempt at like this offbeat comic character and uh i did not gel to that that's funny well i thought it was i I don't i disagree i guess i thought she was pretty good at making this sort of like grotesque character and it's it's one of those like one note sort of comedic character whose like whole uh affectation is just like one like thing and in michelle williams's case it's uh her voice which is screeching and very high-pitched um but i thought her physical affectations were funny uh, nothing involving Amy Schumer that was funny at all, though. I don't think Amy Schumer is uh, is bad as the lead. I think she's an engaging enough actor. I guess I haven't really seen her in much else, but uh, I thought the I, the material is just like rabidly unfunny. I really considered walking out. <laughs> I I just I hate I really hate uh, drama that is 
um, built around people not saying or saying things that they obviously would say. <laughs> this movie features uh, an enormous amount of that. Uh, I think it's especially egregious is the bits with her friends who notice that she has become like delusional to some extent, but don't like comment on it at all. <laughs> I just it's like, come on, god damn it! But like in its defense, like if you were her supportive friends and she suddenly said, you know, I look amazing and I, I I've changed and I look great. Suddenly, you're kind of in a difficult position. You can't really say actually you look terrible. But like it's Amy Schumer, like she doesn't look terrible, like as it is. It's just that suddenly she, she looks like someone she isn't. Yeah, and this sort of that that sort of saves this movie from being like offensive, I think. Yeah, I mean, like the the main concern with this film, like when you see the trailer and the way that was put together, is that the whole joke of the film is going to be the fact that oh, here's someone who doesn't look like a conventional Hollywood beauty, thinking that she is a Hollywood beauty, and. And the hilarious permutations of that, but in a, in a way that made the movie like more insufferable to me, <laughs> because like if it was like uh, offensive, at least I would have found that like um, engaging in some respect. But they just sort of like uh, make it into just sort of a standard like uh, how to win friends and influence people like lesson about being confident, right? <laughs> and that's kind of the whole drive of the film. But it is kind of. Uh nice that it's a somewhat of a subversion of similar films in which they actually undergo a physical transformation whereas this is purely about a mental transformation and uh, this was not pointed out by me I've, I've like read this before but they also don't go down the the route of like shallow how in which the the mental delusion is manifested on screen like by having Amy Schumer being played by a different person or something like that I feel there are Weights where it almost tips into that. Not not into the to the shallow how thing, but into that sort of offensive quality that we were talking about. I'm I'm loath to think of them right now. <laughs> like the the bikini scene kind of functions like that. Uh, this is similar to what you said about the illogical reaction of other people that kind of sustains this delusion. But what annoys me in a similar vein is scenes in which People act so transparently and unrealistically rude just to, you know, go along with the film's point or make the character embarrassed or whatever. Like, people going to the fashion office, like the beauty product office, reception area, and say, oh, obviously this can't be the place I'm looking for because you're here and you're obviously not the sort of person that would be employed uh, by this superficial beauty company no one would ever like talk like that someone might make a rude remark that's like ambiguous and then they go on and, and maintain some sort of polite surface yeah i think i think that's one of the problems with uh a lot of movies that try to deal with issues like that is it's always like um it's never the small like micro aggressions that are dealt with right it's always like such a deliberate gesture which i guess is it's it's trying to make it hyperbolic in order to like demonstrated i guess if you want to be like favorable to the film but it would have been a, a better film if it had played upon how these specific like little like the little things contribute to our insecurity you know so, i mean that's asking like way too much for this film i think yeah and this is full of tropes like the talent show stuff the bikini contest where you know an unexpected person enters the competition and wins over the crowd yeah yeah. And then the, I guess, 
the denouement of the film is the um, big important presentation for this beauty company that uh, Shuma hijacks and also wins over the crowd. I like I like it that scene specifically where uh, it's like, oh, this is where she finally realizes that uh, she is beautiful or whatever, you know. The confidence that she had was not based on her beauty, but rather it was just sort of ingrained in her to begin with, right? No, it was based on a delusion. <laughs> so the message is self-delusion can get you what you want. Also on the unrealistic other characters thing, when she does that presentation, if you think about what it would have been like in the audience or the production staff who were supposed to do a different presentation, she would have w- walked up, first bumped into a screen comically a few times, started talking showed two slides of herself and tried to explain it as if it was two different visual people, then paused for ages to have this realisation and no one, like, comes up and says, well, we've got to stop this and take her off the stage. Yeah, they're they're uh, you see her as entertainment. Uh, yeah, uh, there's not really much to talk about, honestly. Like, it's just sort of, like, bland. It was just, like, a bland, boring, like, standard-issue rom-com, basically, that... A trailer made look ridiculously offensive, but which it did not live up to. It's the sort of thing that I think would be improved by being shown on television after midnight without breaks. <laughs> honestly, that's pretty funny. What was your What was your theater like? Uh, it was just a smattering of old people, mostly empty. <laughs> that's pretty funny. What time did you see it at? Uh, I think it's like two thirty in the afternoon. Mm. Okay, that makes sense, I guess. Uh, I went to the cinema and I I specifically bought the tickets online, even though it incurred a dollar fifty fee. <laughs> You're such a loser. <laughs> so I didn't have to go up to the the person at the counter and That's say I, so I want a ticket for this film. But don't you have like don't you have a um, you know like automated machines? No, this one doesn't. Some of them do. This one doesn't. Was it a um, chain theater or just like a local? More of a local one, okay. but it shows you know mainstream stuff as well. But I, I was like uh, quite hungry because I hadn't eaten since breakfast. So uh, I was I went to get popcorn. Um, and I guess as part of their duties, the people who serve that counter who also sell tickets, like ask people what movie they're seeing just so they can point out which cinema to go to, which I wouldn't ha- I wouldn't have bought popcorn if I knew that. <laughs> but anyway, so I bought the popcorn and then the woman was like, ah, so what film are you seeing? And I went, uh... and I was like looking up at the board trying to like invent a different film that's funny. <laughs> that I was going there to see. And then eventually, like after like an uncomfortably long time in which I'm literally saying, uh, I went, I feel pretty. And that's pretty sad. <laughs> and she goes, yeah, it's up the stairs. And whatever. Um, enjoy the film. And I said, uh, I don't expect to. And she laughed. And then I realized I should probably explain why I'm seeing it in that case. But she'd already like moved on to someone else. So I was like, uh, I have a podcast. Yeah. I actually said, I think, I didn't even say podcast. I didn't have the, the foresight to say that. I think I said, I have to review it or something like that. <laughs> it's even lamer. Uh, but anyway, she she didn't hear it. So it's sad. But I just walked in with my medium sized popcorn. And... Mm. Well, I guess I could tell my story, which is uh, probably more embarrassing, actually. <laughs> good, good. Uh, <laughs> which I did not have to. Buy a ticket. I did not buy a ticket in advance because he's movie pass. Thank God. Yeah, you motherfucker. <laughs> um, so I bought my ticket from a machine, right? And then uh, I was like idling in the lobby of the theater, and all the AMC theaters in Regal have these people there that have like gift cards, right? 
because they want to chat you up about like renewable energy or some shit, right? And I I don't know why I decided because in living in New York City, you get really good at ignoring people who want either your attention or to give you something or to sell you something, you know? Or to show you their cock on the subway. No. <laughs> or but it, it's kind of like a constant background part of living in New York City and probably like major all major metropolitan areas to some extent because I was I was really tired because I had to wake up at like oh no I had woken up at 5 30 that morning uh because I my sleep schedule has been completely fucked <laughs> because I've had to work really early in the morning the last couple days um not today though um anyway yeah so uh I started talking to this woman who was trying to I don't know get me to switch my on Ed, which is like the electricity provider in New York City to renewable sources. Uh, so I, I chatted with her a bit and uh, she's like, oh, what movie are you going to get to see? And because like they all, they're like, oh, we'll give you a gift card if you like fill out the information. Uh, and I was like, you know what? I could use a gift card to get myself a popcorn. Maybe enjoy this movie a little bit more. <laughs> we used to enjoy the popcorn. I started talking to her. I was like, oh, I feel pretty. And she's like, oh, okay. And I was like, I'm, I'm, I have to see it. And I just immediately was like, I, 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 I have to explain why I've seen this movie. I'm not just, I don't want to see it for my own pleasure. I have to make that clear to this to this woman. Uh, so I was like, oh, I've seen it for a podcast. And she was like, oh, what's the name of the podcast? Uh, <laughs> I was totally listening to it. And I was like, oh, but we haven't released an episode yet. So, <laughs> so I told you it was more embarrassing. So that's funny. But I even got to the best bit yet. So I gave her like my phone number and stuff after talking about this podcast. And she was like, oh, uh, so do you have access to your content? But I was like, oh, no, it's in my uh, <laughs> my, my roommate's name. Uh, and she was like, oh, well, I need your, your could, I, could I have her telephone number then? Because I didn't like want to give out my roommate's telephone number to this random person. I was like, oh, no, sorry. And then she didn't give me a gift card, so I wasted all the time in embarrassment. I didn't even get anything out of it. And it's like, oh, okay. And then I walked away. And when it's all, I feel pretty. Which, unlike you, was filled with, like, uh, it was filled with mostly women. <laughs> mostly young women. But yeah, those, it was really embarrassing. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> I hope you're happy. Anyway, so shall we uh, transition to... The companion piece to I feel pretty in many ways. Uh, yes, uh, to um, Peter Greenaway's Z in two knots. Z in two knots, eh? Is that good? Is that good? Yeah, so I mean, I guess the title is inherently uh, un American. <laughs> that was pretty dismissive. It, it was retitled in America um, as uh, I bought a zoo. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's We bought a zoo. <laughs> So do you say not ever say not for zero or do no, you just always say zero? It's a zero. So this should be called a Z and two zeros. I guess so. I didn't clue in until the film started that it was like the word zoo. It just seemed like arbitrary until I watched it. But yeah. yeah. For the film, which is not arbitrary at all. No, not at all. I guess I should introduce this one because you introduced the last yeah, one. Yeah. Thank God. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, in as much as this film is describable, I mean, there are things that happen. <laughs> it's the um, third feature film from Peter Greenaway. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess an experimental uh, British director of some renown. And it tells the story of a 
swan-related car accident that kills uh, the wives of two zoologists. Two twin brother zoologists. Yep, two twin brothers zoologists who work in this bizarre zoo. And the film sort of documents their attempts to um, come to terms with their grief over the loss of their respective spouses and a bunch of other stuff that's weird happens around that. Uh, that's the, the general premise of the film, but it's not really much of a narrative film by design. Uh, so this was the first uh, Peter Greenaway film that you have seen, yes, correct? it is. Did you know? Did you know much about Peter Greenaway prior to seeing it? No, not really. I knew that he had directed The Cook, The Thief, whatever, whatever that movie's called. You know what I'm talking about. The Cook, The Thief, His Wife and Her Lover. Yeah, and Her Lover. Yeah, I knew he directed that. And I knew that one of my favorite professors uh, when I was in an undergraduate um, said that he was his favorite like working director. And that intrigued me, but uh, I did not watch any of his movies as a result. Except for I watched, I, I remember this between me telling you it had been the first time I watched any of his films. Uh, and when I was watching this, uh, I actually watched a very, like maybe 10 minutes of a documentary he had made about Rembrandt um, when I was in college. Oh, interesting. He also made a um, fictionalization of Rembrandt's life starring Martin Freeman as Rembrandt. He did. Funnily enough, um, Night Watching. That movie is like a narrative articulation of the ideas in that documentary from what I understand. Okay. But yeah, yeah, this is sort of my first encounter with him. Um, I And I honestly don't know if this makes me intrigued to watch any more of his filmography. Interesting. Yeah, I, I don't really, I didn't really know what to make of this movie. I thought it was like very interesting to look at. And obviously his skills as a uh, composer of striking images are uh, very impressive. <laughs> it, it seemed to be striving for some sort of like almost uh, avant-garde farce quality, but it never quite really attained that for me, I think. I don't know. It was like, it was sort of like beautiful, but... I honestly found it really hard to keep watching it at points. It's it was more a film that I'm like, oh, I can respect what what this is trying to do, versus like the experience of it being uh, enjoyable on like many levels. Though I thought there were some images that were like amazingly composed. Like at the beginning, there's that one the, when it sets up the car accident. Like it it cuts from like a tiger in a cage to the car accident happening, and then there's the billboard in the background. Uh, of like an SO logo where a tiger is bursting through a cage. I thought that was like amazing. The opening scene and the staging of the car crash, uh, I think is is the strongest point of the film and it's and it's an amazing image, yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, and then the rest of it's just sort of like, there's some bits that I thought were enjoyably surreal and absurd, but yeah, overall it was kind of like, yeah, it was kind of nonplussed by the whole thing. It didn't really engage me on any sort of, like, higher level. It always seemed to be a movie that was striving for that, but it never quite uh, attained it for me anyway. It, it's probably an odd introductory film. Even though it is characteristic of Peter Greenaway, it's probably the film in which his style really crystallized in a lot of ways. But something like The Cook, The Thief, His Wife and Her Lover is a much more accessible entry point. Uh, and it has more of a straightforward narrative drive. It gives the actors more to work with. I mean, it's not like I need those things necessarily. I, I didn't find the stuff that you're placed that sort of straightforward this with to be compelling. But I think with this, 
in its in its purposeful lack of any straightforward narrative and and certain techniques as well there's a distancing effect which keeps you keeps you sort of separated from investing yourself in in what's a lot of what's going on and it kind of reminded me a little bit of uh, Nicholas Rogue in some of his films which which I sense something like that happening and again, I don't mind movies that sort of want you to reflect like that you know or use like Brechtian techniques but I just didn't find the reflection to result in anything that was interesting it sounds kind of like nihilist to me and it was just like whatever to me it kind of resembles like a feature-length installation art piece more so than than a straightforward film um and on that on that basis uh, i enjoyed it as as like a grand composition of stuff that he's just thrown into the film uh, and it, it mixes a lot of his usual um predilections like you know, the stuff to do with the body and sex and food and taboo stuff like incest and decay and all, all this sort of stuff. I know, it's like a parody of uh, Dead Ringers a little bit, which I find to be a much better film. Which I haven't seen, so I can't speak to that. I enjoyed this film quite a lot. I'm not sure if it's entirely successful. Yeah, I, I expect, I, I suspected that you would have. You can see that uh, a lot of it's in my in my wheelhouse, I guess. Yeah, like being a bunch of pretentious garbage. <laughs> There's a lot of elements I like. I, I get, there are, there are a lot of elements that I enjoy too. Like I liked, um, again, like I thought it was just wonderfully composed, you know? But it, it, it definitely reminded me of the installation art piece where I'm like, oh yes, this is very well thought out, but does it really add up to anything? I don't really think so. There's a there's a particular thing with with Peter Greenway which he, he admits himself, but he's got like a clerical approach to to his work in some cases. I watched a couple of things on him uh, and listened to him speak about it. I think he's the one who coined that dumb uh, proclamation that cinema died in 1983 with the invention of the remote control. Oh, I think God. that was Green, Greenway, and he he's the the type of person who will say things like the enslavement of narrative with a straight face. But anyway, he his background, which, as you can kind of tell from this, is as a painter. Yeah. And he was influenced by a particular visual artist called R.B. Kitai, who, in his work, fused literary influences and elitist and arcane knowledge with, as, he sa- as Greenaway says, no sense of embarrassment. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's an extent to which Greenaway does the same thing, putting together a lot of ideas, some lofty, some base, I guess, um, and throwing them into a film. And uh, he's often criticised for making these sort of cataloguing films um, based around organising principles. Like there's the alphabet in the Z and two noughts, um, which kind of threads through the film in which a little girl is being prompted to name animals based on letters of alphabets. His first film, The Falls, is like a 92-part fake documentary, which is like a three-hour film, uh, which I'm curious to see when I can be when I can be bothered. It's just like this this rigorously ordered thing. And A Z and Two Knots has that kind of style where there's just all this stuff thrown into the film, uh, and it's not really threaded through a particular compelling narrative or characters. It's just part of this central thing. And I kind of like cinema that tries to do stuff like that and become a, a, a different product than perhaps we're used to. Yeah, sure. Um, but yeah, I can, I can see why there are, it puts people off. Um, and I'm not sure myself if, if I think it's entirely successful. 
uh, in a way that something like The Cook, The Thief is. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd, I'd probably recommend like watching that just as a companion piece. Yeah, I, I, there's enough there's enough like stylistic and um, an aesthetic uh, stuff here that I thought was enjoyable that I, I wouldn't mind checking out other of his films. I just don't know if this one in particular really did it for me. Yeah, I think if you check out anything else from the three I've seen, I'd watch The, the Cook and The Thief. Like, I watched The Draftman's Contract, which is the one before it, um, and it was before he hooked up with um, Sasha Vianney as his cinematographer, who does, as you can see, amazing cinematography. Oh, yeah, it was fucking... It was great to look at. And he worked with him until his death. So The Draftman's Contract, the one before it, is not as visually sumptuous, although it still has interesting compositions, and it's lower budget. So there's less of that, you know, elaborate production design that makes it so enjoyable to watch. Although the Drossman's contact is is more narrative based than this again, but not so compellingly as as the Cook the Thief, either I think. But they're both they're both uh, good films. This this might just be an assumption. Again, I've only seen three of his films and I did like them all, but um, he seems to me like the the type of director who you get into and then you get off the train at some point and never get back on. Yeah, he definitely seems like someone who you'd have like a phase with, you know, where you're just really into his aesthetic and then you just never watch any of his movies ever again. <laughs> you can see that happening. Especially past a certain point, like maybe like past uh, Prospero's books or something, which was uh, his early 90s um, Tempest adaptation. I actually really want to watch that. And then it uh, he, he kind of goes into weird multimedia projects. He gives a fuck about that. This is a fucking cinema show, for fuck's sake. And now he's 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 made he's made a few films about Dutch painters. And <laughs> Sounds boring. It, it, I I can't imagine ever wanting to like see everything he's ever done. If that makes sense. Yeah, he, his product does seem a little um, self-consuming. Um, but he he seems quite influential, even though I don't hear him mentioned that often by other directors. Mm. Particularly the way he uses the score, or at least the score itself. Michael Nyman does the score for, for a lot of his films, and, and uh, including The Cook, The Thief, and Draftsman's Contract, I think, as well. And he, his style of doing the score and, and that repeated motif and like the soaring string parts is something that was really taken up in the new millennium American cinema. And it reminded me of, um, this is like a completely unrelated film entirely, but it reminded me of uh, the central song in, not California Dream, but the, the sort of uh, compositional piece in... Uh, um, Chunking Express that opens the film. You know what I'm talking about? Ah, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. There you um, go. It, it reminded me of a film which I don't like, um, Requiem for a Dream. Never seen it. Which uses a dramatic string, or not a string score, but dramatic classical score. Yeah. It's funny that you, because obviously Requiem for a Dream is such a sincere film, right? I mean, presumably. But here it's like ironic, right? It's definitely, it's definitely one of those films that you watch and you're like, is this everything in this a joke? Or is you know... Like it's, you're never sure if something's supposed to be taken seriously or not. So I, I think I think he wants to be taken seriously, but I th- I definitely think he has a sense of humor. Yeah, for sure. That's clear from his, the other films I've seen as well. Even though some people have, have like criticized them as humorless, he definitely has a sense of humor. No, I mean, that's I don't, I don't think that's I don't think that's true at all. But I I enjoyed this uh, sort of as like a parody of like. <laughs> Uh, intellectualism in general, you know? We're just like the idea that you could find a system that would explain the entire world, right? It's just so ridiculous when compared to like just even the most basic like tragedy. 
my favorite bits of the movie were the the films um that the two brothers shoot of uh the animals decaying. Uh, i especially love the staging and the production design of the scenes where it shows the little time the time lapse setups of each of the things and they um you know blinking like back and forth yeah his, his command of mise-en-scene is is very impressive but at a certain point it's almost like watching a spectacle film for me where it just felt like decorous but not for any real reason but yeah definitely definitely a, a worth a watch i think i think for the opening scene alone the opening scene is great it's got some stuff that i thought was like really bizarre and grotesque and funny in that way and i've heard that some of his other films are like way more grotesque and i'm kind of interested to watch those too let's get to the final segments okay highlights lowlights yeah. and sidelights you want to start uh all right my highlight of my watching activity last week was i will probably give it to because okay let's let's be clear one the reason i just quickly changed the terminology to highlight instead of necessarily the best film i've seen you son of a bitch because then you you know because you might have a few that you think were great but you want to highlight one particular one but that's what that's what the third option's for no that's a wild card whatever (laughs) something you just want to talk about anyway so uh, a highlight let's no let's do let's do let's do low lights first you want to do low lights yeah i want you to do your low light first uh okay let me have a look at (laughs) just because i know you want to talk about your highlight (laughs) (laughs) but deny you pleasure for making me watch i feel pretty (laughs) okay uh i would say uh aside from the films we've talked about aside from i feel pretty the the the, your highlight by far yeah my low light uh is probably abigail's party i mean which is not really a film because it was (laughs) a a television film i guess it's a film it's more like a filmed play so it's uh mike lee this is totally arbitrary (laughs) what's it give me the lowdown it's mike lee uh-huh. I've never seen anything that he's made. And it's about a rather insufferable woman played by his then wife, <laughs> Alison Stedman. That's really funny. Uh, and it obviously wasn't supposed to be a portrait of his wife, but she's in a lot of his works. She's throwing a party and she's invited uh, a couple of her friends slash neighbors around and it's one of those dinner party films or party films in which buried prejudice and fears and jealousies spill over over the course of this party which is probably my least favorite genre of thing it's your it's your high concept comedy yeah and mike lee is somewhat notorious and criticized for making these didactic films um, that uh, push this progressive agenda idea of, of yeah of you know the British class system and stuff like that I don't know there's there's something about the way that Mike Lee does it that doesn't sit right with me it, it feels like there is something of a which people have leveled this criticism at him before but something of a contempt for the characters in the film and they just they just feel like props for him to get across his dumb message <laughs> really so yeah, I didn't really enjoy the way this this one plays out. But doesn't he doesn't he typically like work with his actors to create character? Yeah, so his technique is is to work for months with the actors 
beforehand. So a lot of the dialogue and stuff in the final film is improvised, but based on months of work with the actors. So yeah, the, the characters emerge through that process, but obviously he's directing the whole thing. So he knows the type of thing that he's looking for and the type of stories and and he does and like he obviously knows how the plot is going to progress and he often keeps that from the actors until the last minute so they can react adaptively in the moment and all that sort of stuff he sounds like a less interesting uh jacques uh rivet then who would also work with his actors but unlike that he would work to um isn't all the plots and stuff would come out of improv i'm not sure the extent to which you know, some of that process also influenced the structure of the works. But, I, I, yeah, I do know that, that at least that he had, you know, an overarching idea in mind that he wanted to fit them into. Um, and, it, you know, it, it yields interesting performances, I guess, and it, it makes them good at being able to improvise within this framework of a character they've created and all that sort of stuff, which is clear. But, yeah, I, I just didn't really enjoy it. I, I thought it was a bit one-dimensional, really. But this doesn't seem like his, one of his great films, right? It's a really famous work of his. It's not, yeah. As I said, it's a, it was made for television, so it's not quite in the same league as that. And I watched another of his TV works, which was um, Nuts in May. Both of these, they're all on YouTube. They're easy to find. Doesn't surprise me. And readily available. Actually, that's a shame because I've I've been looking for uh, some Alan Clark uh, films. He almost exclusively worked in television, um, and it's hard to find a lot of his films in the states, at least. Like he directed an adaptation of the Brecht play Ball, which starred David Bowie, and I really wanted to watch that, but I couldn't find it anywhere. I actually just bought a, a, a Blu-ray copy of uh, uh, a version of that play that was directed by uh, Volker Schlondorf um, and stars Rainer Werner Fassbender in the lead role, which sounded fascinating to me, so I bought it, <laughs> not knowing anything else about it, really. But you never seen uh, a Fassbender, so probably not as interesting to you. I've seen um, Alien Covenant. I'm just leaving some silence so I can cut in the laugh track. Great. <laughs> so yeah, Abigail's party I didn't particularly enjoy, but I also saw um, Nuts in May, which is I think a little bit earlier than that, and uh, maybe has similar problems, but I found it much more enjoyable. And but I won't talk about that. So in terms of his feature work, I can't remember what films I've seen, but I've definitely seen Topsy Turvy, which is his film about Gilbert Sullivan, uh, which I actually love. So. No. Oh. So maybe he's better when he gets away from, like, uh, the modern era, which sort of lends itself more easily to that didacticism. Have you seen Naked? No, I'm curious to see that. Yeah, I want to watch that one, too. But I'll have to, I'll have to check out Topsy Turvy. Turvy. I wasn't going to watch it, despite, like, not caring at all about it. <laughs> Gilbert and Sullivan. Well, uh, unlike you, who seems to have kept his, like, uh, low lights to a minimum, all based around sort of, like, highbrow interest, right? I have a trio of... Uh, two films, one sort of... A trio of two films. That's interesting. I didn't, I didn't finish. I didn't finish. I hope you get I shot. <laughs> uh, anyway, so so two films and a sort of promotional music video short film. <laughs> just if you know what that one is. Yeah. Um, so I'll just talk briefly about all of them because they're not really worth talking about. Um, and two of them I actually saw in the movies. Um so yesterday I went and saw Godard Monomore. Uh, it's a biography about the famous filmmaker Jean-Luc Godard, um, <laughs> which is advertised with a, 
uh, posters that basically were just like, oh, Jean-Luc Godard thinks this film was a stupid idea. Uh, which I have to, I in this in this one case, I have to say I agree with Jean-Luc Godard. <laughs> um, it's sort of a portrait of his of of him sort of becoming increasingly radical, uh, and how his marriage to a an actress named uh, on Wysimeski, right? Um, who is famous actually for starring in uh, Robert Bresson's A Hazard Balthazar. The donkey film? Yes. <laughs> yes, his donkey show film. <laughs> uh, but also in... The English title was Donkey Punch. Gosh. What happens if a donkey does a donkey punch? That's my question. Anyway, uh, I'll leave that to the audience to, 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 to determine. But anyway, she's also in two of his famous works, uh, La... I'm not going to be able to say that. I'm terrible at French. And Weekend. Um, mm-hmm. And this film sort of depicts the deterioration of his marriage. But the, the real the real thing is it's it's just sort of an excuse for uh, the director, uh, uh, Michel... Uh, um, let, me, let me see exactly. <laughs> let's, let's both do our attempt at pronouncing it. Michel, the artist. I think this is... Anyway, the guy who directed the artist. That's what he's known for, so... Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, you mean the artist who directed the artist. No, I don't mean that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah, this so, it's it's off, It's so boring and bad. Like, it, it only exists... It, I, there's a review that I read that... Uh, I, it, it, which the text of it was uh, basically... I respect this only as a elaborate uh, attempt at trolling, which I have to say I agree with. Mostly because uh, Jean-Luc Godard is a pompous asshole, and I don't mind him being trolled. Um, and uh, it just sort of, it's just boring. It makes him look like a total asshole, which he was. Fair enough. But it, it sort of, like, downplays um, his movies. and just sort of, it's just an excuse for him to do various bad pastiches of his work. And also, like, just really sort of bizarrely get the actress who's playing uh, the main female character like naked in like 20% of the film <laughs> which sort of like is, is especially strange considering that it was based on the actual woman's like memoir of her love affair with the Godard so I don't know uh, there was a lot of penis in it though which I appreciated um, I've seen a lot of penises today actually a lot of pain yeah thank you uh, but also with the uh, Zed and Two Dots also features a lot of what a dog um, but yeah, there's like no reason to watch it. I was hoping it'd be sort of like, um, again, with like, oh, I feel pretty, just like, uh, atrocious, but it was just sort of boring and bland. So there you go. So my, the second film in this, in this trilogy is a little film called Rampage, which, uh, is a, a video game adaptation starring, uh, Dwayne The Rock Johnson, where he plays a zoologist who hates humans, who... Uh, is friends with a albino gorilla who gets a bunch of science in him and becomes giant and then has to fight a bunch of other giant monsters, which is just torture. <laughs> the actual, like, rampaging segments of the film maybe are 10 minutes. Uh, and it, it's got a very perverse sort of uh, disinterest in human life. The main character who is presented as sort of a heroic figure, uh, who eventually does save the city, uh, kills multiple people, <laughs> which is not acknowledged. It doesn't not seem to be acknowledged by the film. <laughs> I've heard people say that as a positive. I, 
I, I mean, I guess you could take it as a positive. You're like, oh, I want a vision of nihilism. I don't even like it. It made my blood boil at certain points. Points, uh, just in the the jokes it tries to make with the the gorilla. There's a sequence where he makes like a oh, Dwayne the Rock Johnson is gonna have sex with Naomi Harris gesture that I, I like wanted to like throw something at the screen because I hated it so much. It has the gall to like try to get you to feel something at the end when it spoil alert pretends that the gorilla is dead. Uh, and he's not briefly. It's just something. It's just something so bland and. Bland on one hand, and then, like, um, it was really unenjoyable about it. And I, I thought it was, I thought it was trash, and I hated it, and that's Rampage. Uh, and the third film we had to talk together, together, er, ah, well, we had to talk about together, because we both watched it, uh, which is a promotional film for, uh, David Bowie's, I think his greatest album, would you agree with me on that? Yeah. By far. Yeah, yeah. In some ways, his only good record. Yeah, yeah, of course, of course. Um, in many ways, really. In all the ways. In any way that can be said or mined. Uh, for his record tonight, which is sort of like a, uh, aesthetic follow-up to Let's Dance, minus the inspiration, <laughs> called Jazzin' for Blue Jean, which is built around the, um, the central single of that, that album, uh, Blue Jean. Sort of a, you know, it's like a fine enough song, I suppose. Yeah, I quite like the song. But yeah, it's, it's kind of like a... Um, somewhat inspired like riff on fifties rock and roll, and it's 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 like pleasant enough, but it's not like um, it doesn't like quite live up to his best work. I think, just like let's dance, I guess. But it's it's a fine enough song. Uh, the music video, on the other hand, is is awful, and it's just sort of it it stars Bowie as both a uh, working class uh sign or poster uh, putter upper. So it's it's just it's basically the exact same film as Bicycle Thieves, and his double, the rock and roll star. Uh, screaming Lord Byron, who um, working class Bowie pretends to know um, in order to impress a attractive young woman. I did not make up the name, um, but is it really Screaming Lord Byron? It is. It is. Um, but it's all predicated on the idea. It's it's basically just a lot of jokes. <laughs> That's what the movie is. Uh, none of them are especially funny. <laughs> so I watched this like not long after... Um... We had seen like just a gigolo. It is better than just a so, gigolo. On that basis, I really enjoyed it. <laughs> <laughs> but in comparison to any other film ever, it's uh, somewhat lacking. I just the idea of David Bowie playing like a working class character is so absurd. <laughs> like, there's a sequence where he talks to a uh, African American bouncer. Just is trying to like come up with a like excuses why she let him in. That it's like borderline offensive and also just like <laughs> so unfunny. <laughs> but it's kind of like it, at least it was like annoying in a way that was like present versus just to go just just not right his, yeah, his performance is much better he seems more invested in the material because he obviously conceived of the, the idea God. oh yeah he did it also is better in comparison because the man director is this guy named julian temple uh who's a terrible filmmaker and he's in the film at the end he is briefly um but uh but he also directed a music video for Bowie's uh, actual worst album. <laughs> uh, what's that called? Never Let Me Down, which uh, ironically let everyone down. Eh? Eh? Mm-hmm. Eh? Mm-hmm. Um, we a music video for the song Day In, Day Out, uh, which is somehow worse. <laughs> I think you could attest to that as well. <laughs> well, that's just a music video. This is actually yeah. like a... This is like longer, but uh, less offensive. But he, he sort of makes... 
No, he's known for making rock and roll sort of movies, and they're all terrible. So there you go. And music, and music. Videos. Yes, like, yes. Tons of them. He's probably best known for directing Absolute Beginners, which, unlike this, is good only because the only good part of that movie is the David Bowie song that was part of it. Anyway, yeah, you can talk for a bit. Did you like the self-deprecating joke where he yells after the Bowie analog character play, played by himself? Your record sleeves are better than your song. She's like, yeah, yeah, yeah he knows, yeah, he knows yeah. some of the criticism he gets. He's working it in in that metatextual ending. Oh, it was on. great. Come on. It was great. Come on. <laughs> I just like the idea that it was this, that type of cringe comedy uh-huh. within the context of David Bowie. <laughs> what, was, what's your, what was your highlight, Hugh? Uh, I'll go with Sweetie, which is uh, Jane Campion's debut film. Sorry. Australia's, New Zealand's, Jane Campion's debut film. Uh, so it's a film about a somewhat eccentric but reasonably together woman and her dysfunctional family, especially her sister, who gives the film its title. What is interesting about this film is it seems like an Australian film, right? But the only difference is it's good. <laughs> so, <laughs> This is a good Australian films. Yeah, I know. But it, so it anticipates the sort of 90s wave of resurgent Australian films. The hallmark of them is a certain quirkiness, I guess. Oh, God. When you, you know, look look at films like Mirror's Wedding and, and Priscilla and, and stuff like that, there's a, there's a, a certain aesthetic that uh, Sweetie kind of anticipates. And I haven't actually like revisited those films, which aren't bad films by any means. And I think... I'd be, I'm interested to revisit Muriel's Wedding. I haven't seen it since I was like 10. I don't even know what that is. But uh, it was Tony Collette's breakout role. Oh, okay. But Sweetie, I really enjoyed. It has a better visual sense than a lot of similar Australian films. I like Jane Campion's sensibility. I think this is the only... I think Maybe this is the only Jane Campion film I've actually seen because I've never seen The Piano, I don't think. Unless I saw it really, really young, but... So what I like about Sweetie is that, kind of as I've alluded to, the central character is not just like a straightforward foil for her eccentric family and crazy sister. She's quite a complex character in her own right. And we, we kind of get the setup of, of the first chunk of the film doesn't even have the sister or the rest of the family in it. So I think it's, it's more of a nuanced, complex portrayal than it may have been in other hands. Uh, but yeah, nothing much to say about it because I just freshly watched it, but very good film okay so what was your uh oh i guess it's my turn she <laughs> before they do that i'm gonna use the bathroom real quick so i guess don't pause the recording or pause the recording take the laptop to the bathroom okay Okay, here I am. So I'm going to do my highlight, which my highlight of the week is a little film called, uh, it's called Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, or as the Japanese title translates to, Christmas on the Battlefield. Um, but anyway... But it's a movie that you should love because it stars uh, Australia's Jack Thompson, 
And Australia's beat Takeshi. <laughs> and Australia's Ryuichi Sakamoto. David Bowie. Yeah. <laughs> David Bowie does play uh, an Australian, though he doesn't do an Australian accent. Because yeah, there's, a, there's a flashback scene which either takes place in New Zealand or Australia. I'm assuming Australia. It's a character, it's a kid playing young David Bowie who's just, he's doing an, uh, like a really like blonde hair, blue eyed little child. He's doing a very, uh, or who has an Australian accent. Uh, and then the character becomes a teenager. For some reason, he, he's played by David Bowie. So you know that it's a flashback. <laughs> so, but David Bowie is not doing an Australian accent. Uh, but anyway, so it's a, uh, a film directed by Nagasa Oshima. It's, it's about a POW camp for allied soldiers. Um, it follows four main characters. The titular Mr. Lawrence uh, is played by Tom Conti, who gives a very, very good performance. Who's, who is someone who is sort of well-versed in, uh, in Japanese culture. And is actually really interesting to learn that uh, he, he actually has a lot of Japanese dialogue in this. Which is interesting considering how like sort of it doesn't sound like it was a word phonetically, you know what I mean? Like one of the languages that he speaks, but it doesn't it definitely sounds like he has a, a familiarity with the language that goes beyond just like learning lines phonetically. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, and he performs them pretty well. Um, it's probably one of the easier languages to learn phonetically. Because it doesn't have that many sounds, right? Uh, so he sort of play. He's like an intermediary between the this the camp prisoners and the um, the guard structures that uh, the guard structures. Jesus Christ, the Japanese guards. <laughs> And he um, has sort of a, uh, a interesting relationship with a, a captain played by um, uh, Takeshi Gitano, who's also just amazing in this. Mm. Like it's so different from like the either uh, the like really stoic performances he gives in all of his like Yakuza films that he's in. And he's like, I mean, it was before his motorcycle accident too, so he could probably like actually emote versus now. <laughs> but he's like really good. And so he has a sort of friendship with him. Uh, the camp gets a new commander. He's played by Ryuichi Sakamoto of Yellow Magic Orchestra. Very good band. Uh, and Sakamoto also did the soundtrack, which is amazing. Oh my god, I didn't know he was in it. Yeah. That's weird. Yeah. Um, so that sort of meta casting, I don't know, it works. It's, it's, it's weird putting him against Bowie, right? And they get a new prisoner who's played by David Bowie. Ryuichi Sakamoto's character kind of becomes sort of, perhaps erotically, perhaps not. I mean, it's it's definitely like, because homosexuality sort of is an undercurrent in the film. Like, even the one of the first scenes is about, like, a, um, a Korean guard who rapes a Dutch prisoner. And so he becomes sort of erotically obsessed with David Bowie's character. It's very meditative. Like, it doesn't have a lot of, like, throwing. It's not very, like, narratively driven at all. Um, and it actually sort of, at first, you think it's just going to be sort of a... Um, you know, ex- examination of like culture classes and the like fundamental differences between like different cultures and how it's so difficult to understand and like respect each other and how hard it is to understand motives in a culture that you're not like intrinsically familiar with, right? Uh, but it almost evolves into sort of like a, a humanist sort of meditation on the um, pointlessness of war and the arbitrariness of, of guilt, especially in, in combat. Uh, and I thought it was really amazing. <laughs> Uh, Bowie is actually probably the weak link, but and his performance is fine when he's just supposed to be like a erotic presence, but when he's actually required to like uh, emote um, more, he sort of he's like fine. He just doesn't really quite. He, he's better in other films, I think, like Just a Gigolo. Um, yeah, totally. there's a great great quote from uh, uh, Bowie, which apparently um, uh, Oshima would give 
his Japanese actors like just tons of of uh, explanation about exactly what he wanted, and then he just sort of like let the the British actors do whatever they wanted, which is really funny. The quote apparently is, uh, "He told them to do whatever it is you people do," <laughs> <laughs> just, which is great. But apparently, this film's a lot more conventional than some of uh, Oshima's other films. But it's just yeah, I was I was gonna say like I, I always because I only remember seeing it very really. Uh, vaguely as a as a relatively young person a teenager or younger um, and i just remember it as seemingly relatively conventional especially compared to what i later learned of Ishima's film it uses a conventional style in parts and it it uses itself for quite a different end than i think the typical like wartime drama and the music also is very sort of uh it works to complicated i think because it's a very eclectic score um that i think is fabulous um, but it's just really, it's really interesting. It seems to be like a really touchy subject, like the, the Second World War in Japan. It really makes the Japanese, like, army seem like a bunch of, like, sad, saddest. I don't know. It's really good. Yeah, and it's weird because it was also a co-production between Britain and Japan. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I thought it was really excellent. Um, and I would encourage you and the listener to watch it. I guess you should stop recording this podcast, right? Yeah, we should, yeah. Goodbye, great podcast.